In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I was glad to work with the vice president uh, in forming six separate task forces, which had some of the most knowledgeable people in the country coming together to come up with a compromise. And I think the compromise that uh, they came up with, if implemented, will make Biden the most progressive president since FDR. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. Uh, we're going to talk today about Joe Biden, international man of mystery. What do you think? So there, there's a bunch here to talk about, and I think we're, we need to go in a certain order because this has been like a banner week for Joe Biden policy releases. So about a week ago, the Joe Biden-Bernie Sanders Joint Task Forces came out. It's 110 pages worth of task force documentation covering the joint recommendations on climate change, on criminal justice, on healthcare, on the economy, on, on a bunch of different stuff. Really, I think, interesting and usual document. I will note reading it that the word Democrats is used 229 times. This is really a, a party platform. And then Biden released this Build Back Better plan, which is a new centerpiece framing for his economic, actually for all of his agendas, really. Uh, and I was on a call with the vice president and a couple other reporters about that, that I thought revealed some interesting things about how he's thinking about this and even to me more importantly how he's thinking about passing it but I, I think we should start with the task forces because in some ways they lay the groundwork for for what comes next and I know you and I know you've been spending some time Matt reporting on that yeah so I've been talking to a lot of the people who are involved in the task forces sort of from the from the left hand side uh, both officially and unofficially and there's a lot of uh Excitement, I would say. I mean, I'm, I'm working on working on a piece about this, trying to tweak the language. Um, but there is a Joe Biden agenda now that people on the left, at least on the faction of the left that participate in this process, are pretty enthusiastic about. Um, and so F Fashik here managed Bernie Sanders' campaign. Um, I was talking to him about this. And, you know, I was asking him, like, how how should we think about, about Joe Biden? And, you know, he was saying, look, like, Biden is a moderate Democrat. He's an establishment Democrat. Uh, but that also means that, you know, as politics shift, and as his sense of what's politically possible shifts, that Biden has shifted with it. And, and Faz, you know, he he said, like, 
speaking of of himself and his sort of Bernie faction, he said, you know, we're the heartbeat of the Democratic Party. We basically pump the ideas into the bloodstream of the party. Uh, but he feels that Biden has taken up a lot of those ideas on domestic policy. Um, I, I, I quote that, you know, that that bloodstream thing. Uh, uh, Walid Shahid from Justice Democrats told me something similar. Not so much, you know, even for its veracity, uh, but because it it indicates to me that a lot of people on the left have gotten themselves to a point where they feel good enough about Joe Biden that they want to start explaining to me that, like, they deserve credit. <laughs> For Biden, right? Rather than a, a situation we were in months ago where there was a lot of like, uh, there's going to be a lot of problems with Joe Biden. Like he's really not exciting people. He doesn't have a real vision. Now it's like it's it's all turned around, not from literally every left wing person in America, but for the people who, you know, work with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the people who work with Bernie Sanders, the people who work with with elected officials, they think that this is a winning platform. They think it has a lot of really good ideas in it, and they are eager to be seen as having contributed to the formulation of those ideas. Uh, particularly, uh, you you mentioned the, the Build Back Better speech, but particularly as the pandemic has sort of increased everybody's sense that the government needs to do a lot of stuff, they think that on kind of domestic priorities, there is a sort of a meeting of the minds there, that there's no faction of the Democratic Party that's saying, oh, well, this is no big deal. We can just sort of let the market handle it. Let's get weedsy on this. What are some of the places where the task force ends up substantively moving Joe Biden in a direction he already wasn't or bringing in something new? Like what, what is, what does it amount to on policy? I'd say the sort of headline result is the change of the, um, carbon free electricity goal from 2050 up to 2035, uh, is a sort of shifts it from a realm of, this is an abstraction to this is a crisis that we need to address right now. Uh, that's how the sort of Sunrise Movement people put it to me, because I've been sort of wrangling with them for months now as to like, what difference do these targets even make? You know, it's like we can say like, we're going to be all unicorns and lollipops by 2050. And someone else says, ah, oh, it's going to be unicorns and lollipops and we won't need any nuclear power. And, and it's like, so what? Right. Um, but, but the way they put it to me is that the 2035 goal moves the end point close enough to the present that you are committed to doing changes in the first four to eight years of a Biden presidency that would be noticeable. Right. Like you. You have to make a big change now to get anywhere within the neighborhood of that target. It's something he moved up to. Um, there's also a bunch of changes. I think this is probably not going to be the focus of our conversation, but sort of small changes around immigration policy uh, where Biden has moved closer to what activists were looking for. Not that he wasn't there, but these were discussions that didn't actually take place during the campaign about detention beds, about the remain in Mexico policy, all kinds of other stuff like that. So he's he's taken on a lot of what the advocates wanted. And in that case, the whole sort of shadow debate over decriminalizing uh, unauthorized uh, border crossings has kind of actually helped pave the road for everyone being happy with this. Because that was like a big high profile fight. And Biden like owned the moderate lane of saying he wasn't going to do that. Um, and he still isn't. But advocates had never actually been that 
interested in that topic. And he has now made policy commitments to them that they are much more interested in. Uh, then on healthcare, you know, it seems like the change, uh, this was characterized to me by people on Biden's side as a clarification rather than a change, uh, but that the uh, public option will be open to people who are on employer-sponsored insurance currently. I, I want to talk about this at some point because I think this is a little misleading, actually. Someone is misleading somebody, and I'm not sure who it is. I have spoken to them at length about this issue, and I understand why they're calling this a clarification, not a change, but 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 let me go into this for a minute. Yeah. They, they made a couple changes to the public option here. One of the changes is that they, and this is a concession to the Sanders world, they ensured that the public option would have as one of its choices, which is interesting. The public option is, is now clearly going to have multiple insurance options within it, which was not always obvious, at least to me. Um, but one of them is going to be a no deductible, no co-pays, et cetera, choice, right? One of them is going to be like the Bernie Sanders free of point of care uh, choice, which Assumingly, we'll have higher premiums or something. But the public option is also intended to be subsidized, which is really, really important for this next part. So on one level, anybody can buy into the public option. I could buy into it. I get healthcare through Vox Media. Um, I could just decide I hate our healthcare and pay out of pocket the full premium price for the public option. Fair enough. What I cannot do is either get Vox Media to use the money it is spending on our healthcare for the public option, which is something that other plans at other times have said you should be able to do, right? So I can't say to Vox Media, you're willing to pay X for my healthcare. I don't want my healthcare to come from a private insurer. I want it to come from the public option. Vox Media cannot say, we do not want to buy health insurance from private insurers. We want to buy it from the public option. That to me is a, a really weird thing. And I don't know why they have made that um, their goal. Um, I don't know why they don't let just employers buy into the public option. I have talked to them about this at length. I've written a whole piece about how this is something they should do, um, but they have not done it, um, as, at least as far as I can tell on here. Um, and those two things would be the real things that would unwind employer healthcare. It's a crazy deal for most people who get employer healthcare. So on average, employers pay something around 70% of employee healthcare costs. Right. That 30% can still be quite substantial that you pay, but, but it's not as much as 100%. So the, the decision to go to a public option where you will pay 100% of the cost, as opposed to the private option that your employer is offering, where they pay 70%, like nobody's going to take that deal. But if you could use that money that the employer is paying for the public option, which in theory will be cheaper and better because of its Medicare pricing powers, you might want to do that. And if your employer could use their money to buy into the public option, which again might be cheaper and better, they might want to do that. But the Biden campaign is not letting them do that. It's a it's a weird thing where they think their view is that like they don't seem to want to unwind employer health care. Like that is not a policy goal they have. Um, but that's one of the things I was sort of hoping to see happen in this task force plan that didn't. But so if you go back to 2009, right, there was this sort of puzzling dialogue about employer, quote unquote, dumping of people into the insurance yes. exchanges, in which I think like one view would have been that it would be it should be a policy goal. Like as long as you were creating whole new health insurance exchanges, you would want to make them good enough that people would want to be on them. But people in Congress did not construe it that way. 
right? They, they had a narrative in their heads that they did not want existing employers to be, quote unquote, dumping people into the exchanges, that they wanted to create a supplemental system that would help new people get health insurance. But if the exchanges were so good that like people were actually clamoring to use them, that that would be bad. And this public option switch, even though it's it's weird, right? It doesn't go where you were going or where uh, Pete Buttigieg's plan had it, which was like, let's try to get people onto the public option. It, it now does seem to me to have more of a model of neutrality, right? Like if you were starting, if Biden's healthcare plan as written post-task force took place, and you were starting a new company, I think a really plausible idea would be to say, like, fuck it. Like, let's let's not bother contracting with some company to start an employee insurance plan. Um, there's going to be this good a menu of attractively priced plans guaranteed on health insurance exchanges, and we will just pay people money and they'll go do what they want. I still disagree with this. So the, to make one distinction here, the concern about employer dumping is that you currently pay for people's health insurance, but knowing there are these subsidized exchanges, let's say you're an employer and you pay for kind of shitty health insurance for employees you don't pay that well, right? You're, you're an employer, you're a retail employer or something, um, and your, your wage structure is not high. The concern with employee dumping is that you would just dump them onto the exchanges. You would stop paying for anything at all and say, hey, you guys don't make that much money anyway. Just go onto the exchanges where you're going to be almost entirely subsidized and you know we'll give you a dollar raise or something and net-net you'll come out better. That's very different than an employer buy-in, right? Where employers can decide the exchanges are a better deal for them or in the Biden plan, the public option is a better deal for them and their employees and buy into it. In that world, the employer is still spending money, right? The, the concern you have here uh, could be twofold, but usually the concern Democrats are worried about is that it will radically increase the cost of the exchanges because um, uh, em employers are going to now be getting everybody subsidized. Right. Instead of uh, doing things themselves. But that doesn't happen really in an employer buy in. The employer is still spending their money. So what you're worried about there for either because the private insurance companies will be mad at you or you just think it's a bad idea or you're worried about risk selection is something that sometimes comes up here. Maybe the employers who have an older, riskier population would do this and the employers with the younger, healthier populations wouldn't. But you're worried about somehow unwinding the, the private market which I just think you should do. Um, I, I just think it's genuine. It's not neutral here, right? The employer, um, and, and notably, as I understand the way this breaks down, let's say you want to be an employer and you're doing exactly what you just said, Matt. You are starting a new business and you say to yourself, this is stupid. Let's not get into all this work with HR and like contracting out with Cigna or Aetna or Blue Cross or whomever. Let's just pay our employees more money and they can use some of that money to get onto the exchanges. As I understand it, and, and they can tell me if this is wrong, but that money is not tax deductible anymore. One of the reasons we have this whole employer health insurance market is that while the money that my employer, that Vox pays me in wages gets taxed, the money they pay me in healthcare benefits does not get taxed. So like that money is worth, that dollar is worth more than a dollar to me, um, in theory at least. Uh, so that wouldn't happen in, in, in this other world you're talking about. Like, even if the public option is somewhat cheaper, employers can't like 
choose it and still get the big discount that is making their tax dollar, I'm sorry, their healthcare dollars go so much further than their wage dollars would go. Now, my understanding of the reason they don't want to do this is that the public option is going to use, at least as I've seen most of the proposals here, some version of rough Medicare pricing. There are some alterations to it, but it's roughly using Medicare pricing. That means it is getting a pretty big price discount from private insurance. And what that means is that if you let everybody buy into it, it would be cheaper. So you would expect that it would take over the public insurance, I'm sorry, the entire health insurance market. Like it'd just be dumb to um, pay for private insurance when you could get more generous insurance or cheaper insurance through the public options. And Biden does not want to disrupt the market that much in one go. I think he should, but like that is not their view. They are not disruptive in that way. But so this did not do the, this, they did not change their plan here to like, as I put it in, in my piece a couple months ago, like move past employer-based health insurance. Like they are still trying to keep employer-based health insurance in play. Right. Well, so, okay, this is this is super weedsy, but it, like, I think every like CFO- But we are in the weeds. No, no, I know. <laughs> every every CFO in America um, is going to have to sort of do math on this because there's, there's a few different considerations. One is the public option, as you're saying, uh, should have a pricing advantage relative to private insurance, right? So like the dollar is going to go further there because of price controls, in effect. On the flip side, you get a tax subsidy uh, for going private rather than just paying people wages directly. Um, So how valuable that tax subsidy is, is going to depend on both how highly paid your employees are, because the marginal rates are quite different at different points, and also what state you're in, uh, because state income taxes vary quite a bit. Then conversely, Employees get access to direct monetary subsidies if they're earning less than 400% of the federal poverty level, which is a lot of people. I mean, 400% of FPL for one person is $51,000, and it's higher than that, you know, if you have kids, things like that. So that's a non-trivial share of the the wage-earning population. Uh, I I don't know exactly how much, but I think it's on the order of 40%. And the subsidies are going to become more generous because they... The like nerdiest thing in the universe is in this Biden healthcare plan where they are going to peg the affordability metric to a gold rated plan rather than a silver rated plan, which is like no one in America is going to be excited about that because nobody except you, me and Sarah Cliff knows what it means. Uh, but, But the subsidies are getting more generous. So long story short, if you have a primarily low wage workforce, you may be better off now sending people to the exchanges. Uh, but if you have a high-paid workforce, you probably won't be. Then I think on the on the macro politics, though, right? Your piece that came out, it was a couple months ago, right? But I thought it made this point well, which was that people had sort of swept under the rug a big difference between Biden's healthcare plan and other healthcare plans that were also coded as moderate. And so I, going into the task force process, kind of anticipated that there might be a big change here because establishment players in the Democratic Party seemed to concede that Pete Buttigieg's health care plan counted as moderate, right? Like moderate people did not have a problem with Mayor Pete. It was just like voters didn't vote for him. So it seemed like it should have been possible for Biden to go there as a concession to the Sanders people. But then ultimately he didn't. 
out, right? And so I, I would score this as a kind of defeat for the left that I have not heard the left vocally complaining about. Uh, but objectively, it seems like there was a good opportunity to go with a much more progressive plan that had come sort of pre-certified by donors and pundits as acceptably moderate. And they just, they didn't do it. Uh, possibly because they have intelligence that it's a non-starter in Congress. I, I don't really know about Yeah, so that. this is this is actually what I wanted. This is what the next place I wanted to go on on, on these task forces, because I think this is really important to understanding what we're looking at here, because we keep looking at them and being like, um, like, for instance, the the co-chairs of this plan of the healthcare part of this were Representative Pramila Jayapal, who's co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus and the sponsor of the Medicare for All bill in the House, and Vivek Murthy, who's a former U.S. Surgeon General. But also on that team were Donald Berwick, um, who's a former CMS director and helped write Elizabeth Warren's plan, Abdul El-Sayed, who was a gubernatorial candidate in Michigan, uh, doctor, big single-payer supporter, Chris Jennings, who's like the center of the Democratic health policy establishment from like years ago, worked on the Clinton plan, does a lot of consulting, that kind of thing. So you're, you're dealing with, in all of these, all of the task forces had that structure. There were a bunch of people from like what we might call like the, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party or the mainstream wing of the Democratic Party or the establishment wing of the Democratic Party and then the people from the party's left. And if you go back to Obamacare, one of the things that was happening in Obamacare was oftentimes a quite brutal negotiation between the like moderate wing of the Democratic Party and the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And what the Biden team is doing here on all of these different issues, right, healthcare, climate change, et cetera, is they are doing that negotiation now, not later. So these, what's coming out here in theory is acceptable to both camps. And if it's not acceptable to moderate camp, it doesn't work either because then you're just going to have to compromise out later. So like we are seeing here, Earlier, you were saying uh, when, when you were enjoying this that Biden is a moderate Democrat and establishment Democrat. And I was thinking about how those are two different real, really two different axes in this conversation. I think fundamentally what Biden is, is an establishment Democrat. I've said this on the show before, but he's acting in a very direct way, like a party leader more than a factional candidate. It's not like like a moderate candidate, you know, a candidate really like pushing the idea that Democrats should be a moderate party, which is say how Bill Clinton ran in 1992. Like he would win the primary or she would win the primary and come in and say, all right, I've won. And like now you lefties, you're not going to get what you want because we're going to be a moderate party. And like, that's what I was here to do. And like having won, like I, like I now get that prize. Biden wants to be a party leader. Um, he's an establishment Democrat. And so having won, he didn't come in and say like, all right, left, you've lost. He came in and said, okay, like what can we all agree on such that it is the democratic agenda? And that's why I note, if you read this uh, uh, package, it has this very strange structure for a long time at the top where it's like six different summaries of the different task forces where every single paragraph begins, Democrats will, Democrats believe. Democrats know, Democrats believe, Democrats think. And so like, this is really the, the party agenda. This is like what they can all agree on. I mean, the question, which we'll get to a little bit when I talk about the, the Biden call I was on, is whether or not this is actually the real negotiation or the real negotiation is with Republicans, because like that really is important here. But in terms of, of what they were doing here, like 
you know, clearly the reason some of the things didn't happen left might have wanted is that like Biden doesn't just need to get the left. He also needs votes from the party's right flank. He also needs votes from its center flank. And he's just like trying to figure out what is in the Venn diagram of all of them. And it's kind of clever to do it beforehand with such like high profile members of each group. Yeah. So let, let's take a break. And then I, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the, the right side of the Democratic Party. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So, you know, one thing that that occurred to me while I was sort of thinking about this is, you know, you look at some of these things and you have like a climate task force that has AOC from the left and John Kerry is the co-chair from sort of the, the Biden standpoint, right? But if you went back in time to the Barack Obama presidency and you were thinking about legislative, you know, to and fro, Kerry was like a liberal on climate change. And the negotiation was not really like what left-wing ideas will John Kerry get on board with. It's what ideas will, you know, red state Democrats get on board with that John Kerry likes. And so one thing that that I sort of took a look at, um, Joe Manchin will never tell anybody what he will or won't support. He's uh, too good at politics uh, to answer these questions and is very invested in his West Virginia brand. But I was looking at what sort of the more promising challengers in the Democratic Party are are supporting who are, who are running for Senate. Um, these people may not win, right? But if they do win, they will sort of hold the pivotal seats and will decide what's happening. And Cal Cunningham in North Carolina says he supports a public option. Uh, Mark Kelly running in Arizona says he supports a public option. Sarah Gideon running in Maine says she supports a public option. Uh, Steve Bullock in Montana, public option. John Hickenlooper in Colorado, public option. Uh, none of them get into like the kinds of details that you and I were just sweating before the break. But that is a real change from where Democrats were in 2009, 2010, right? It, the people who 
hypothetically would be holding down the difficult Senate seats are saying they want some form of public option. A lot of them have rhetoric about healthcare should be a right, which is a I, I don't know if you call it this. It's like a dog whistle to the left um, a, about sort of healthcare policy. And that's interesting to me. It, it has raised my confidence level that this sort of pre-negotiation process would work if Democrats, Democrats would have to win four or five Senate seats, uh, which is a, a, a tough sort of road ahead, uh, but is at least plausible in the polling. And it seems like this stuff on on healthcare, at least, is things that the pivotal Democrats, the Democrats who are working with Chuck Schumer, et cetera, are on board for. So, so there's a couple odd things in this. Um, one is, I find the metaphysical status of the Biden-Sanders task force, and these are called, I want to note, the Biden-Sanders unity task force recommendations. And so you might ask, who are they recommendations to? And they are recommendations, as I understand it, to the Biden campaign. It is not exactly the case, again, as I understand it, that the Biden campaign is simply saying, this is now our agenda. I think they are more or less implicitly saying this, but a couple days after this 110-page, much-hyped document came out, and by the way, if you want to look at this document, it's not like a beautiful web page on the JoeBiden.com uh, thing. It's a it's a PDF that has like a little Microsoft Word icon at the top of the screen. So it, it's like it's a it's a document, you know. It's not um, his plan. A couple days later. Biden came out with much fanfare with an entire new framing agenda for his policy package. And this is his Build Back Better plan, Joe Biden's jobs and economic recovery plan for working families. And this one's a little bit more like coronavirus framed, although that's actually true throughout the unity document too. But what's going on in this plan is that Biden says that at the center of his approach to his presidency is going to be four bold national mobilizations. And I'm a little bit, uh, our heroic producer, Jeff Geld knows, I've been working on a series for the Ezra Klein show about remobilizing the American economy. And a number of those are taped. And now the mobilization language has been taken by Joe Biden. And so it's slightly inconvenient for me. But nevertheless, the mobilizations are to mobilize American manufacturing and innovation to ensure that the future is made in America and all of America. Um, so that's like a uh, like an industrial policy mobilization. Uh, number two is to mobilize American ingenuity to build a modern infrastructure and clean energy future. So that's like your climate change and infrastructure mobilization, clean, you know, creating jobs through clean energy infrastructure for the most part. Um, number three, which is actually really interesting to me, to mobilize American talent and heart to build a 21st century caregiving and education workforce, which help ease the burden of care for working parents, especially women. That's where you're getting things um, like pre-K and childcare and caring for elders, um, all, all of that. And then number four, which I think is slightly odd to call this one a mobilization, because I don't think this is going to be like a put people to work plan, but is mobilized across the board to advance racial equity in America. And you get a bunch of things in here about um, criminal justice reform and educational opportunity. But this is a good plan, but uh, I think it's like a little bit oddly pushed into the mobilized framework. But nevertheless, so he brings out this new set of plans. 
And each one of these is going to be a plan that he unveils in the future. So he's unveiled the climate change plan and the, the manufacturing plan at this point, but he's not brought out the, the care economy plan and the advanced racial equity plan, although he has background plans and unity task force plans already existing plans. on all of these issues. It's a lot of plans that are now operating in a kind of interesting relationship to each other. One fascinating thing about the Biden campaign is that it is moving left as it goes into the general, not right, which is typically what you see. But nevertheless, um, the interesting question is how all these things relate to each other. So you have the task force recommendations, which, you know, like if you look at the climate plan that followed the Build Back Better agenda, which followed the Unity Task Force plan, there's a through line, like the climate plan follows the Unity Task Force plan recommendations. But all this stuff is now being processed through another um, series. So so the Biden can package it, frame it, et cetera, as not just his own, but but in the way his his team thinks makes sense. Now, there's one other piece of this, of course. Um, so I was on this call with Biden, and there are a couple other columnists on there. And I asked a question that ended up making some news, but the reason I didn't initially report on it super fast is I don't quite agree with the way people framed it. So it will not surprise anybody who listens to the weeds to know that the question I asked Biden was, look, you've got this very ambitious agenda. You've got all these new plans coming out, but you are not going to have 60 seats in the U.S. Senate. And you're not. Um, and now there's some willingness, even among more moderate mainstream Democrats like Senator Chris Coons, to potentially revisit filibuster reform or filibuster elimination. So how do you think about that? Are you open to getting rid of the filibuster? And if not, what is your plan to pass this? And Biden said two things in response here. One he said was, well, it will it will depend a bit on how obstreperous the Republicans are. And like that was a good line because people don't use the word obstreperous. So it was very good to, to quote. But then what he said at much more length and like this is where his um, heart lied was he said, look, I think I can make Republicans agree to more than you all think I can. He said, I know that everybody makes fun of me for this. I know that people think I'm naive and overly optimistic, but I think my record in dealing not just with Republicans, but world leaders is that I don't expect them to like win a profile in courage. I understand what their political constraints are, and I tend to be pretty good at helping them do things they would otherwise like to do but feel they can't do for political reasons. And like Biden's view of the Republican Party is that like, say in the Senate, that there's somewhere between 10 to 15 Senate Republicans who like, if you just gave them true serum or you like freed them from all political fear, they would be able to get on board, not with his entire agenda, but with quite a bit of it. Like they believe climate change is a problem, that kind of thing, but that they can't because they're worried that the base will kill them. And like he thinks he's going to maneuver with them somehow so they can like help vote for his agenda without facing too much base backlash. Like as he says, I think that's unlikely. But his filibuster answer is much more dependent on that second thing. And if you spend all your time trying to do that second thing and you fail, you may not at the end of that have the capacity or the um, uh, political will to do anything about the filibuster, although maybe you will, right? Like maybe that's when the Democrats are like, fine, we're fed up with this. Like we're going to go do it. And, and Joe Biden, you know, Senate institutionalists can give us more support and more cover by being in support of it. But to me, that's actually like the really critical thing in what all this amounts to. A negotiation inside the Democratic Party is very important if Democrats can pass plans without Republican support. A negotiation inside the Democratic Party is not that important if Democrats cannot pass plans without Republican support. And whether or not Democrats can pass, in general, plans without Republican support 
depends with the exception of one budget reconciliation bill a year, which is limited in what can what it can include. It depends on filibuster reform. So I was talking about this with a leader on the sort of rightward edge of Biden land, uh, as well as somebody uh, close to the Democratic Senate leadership. And they were characterizing this as sort of a sort of a good cop, bad cop kind of situation, which is like, look, we're going to go up to Senate Republicans and we're going to say to them, you need to give us something that we can take back to our base and our people and the country, frankly, and say, we accomplished a lot of stuff. We addressed the coronavirus pandemic and we made meaningful progress on racial justice, climate change, healthcare, uh, the sort of top priorities here. In which case, like, we're going to keep the filibuster. You guys know Joe. He's 80 million years old. He's been in the Senate since, you know, before Nixon and, and, and everything. And like, it's going to be fine. But if you try to blockade everything the way you did with Obama, we're going to change the filibuster, at which point, God knows what's going to happen, we're not going to be able to protect you or the country from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or whoever else. I don't think that this works. Like, I have heard a lot of people <laughs> with a lot of clever ideas about political negotiations in my day. And I just don't think like legislative dynamics are controllable on that kind of level, where people pull off these like complicated bait and switches and negotiating across different issue spaces, things like that. Like there's a lot of bargaining in Congress, but it's always internal to one particular issue, right? Like I want to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. You might end up settling on 14 or 13 or 12, but it's like never that the minimum wage goes to 20, but like also we scrap some part of the something totally unrelated. Um, and that seems to me like what's being talked about in this kind of filibuster type stuff. And I just don't, don't see it. Like either Biden will somehow put together some kind of recovery package that Republicans want to pass for whatever reason, or he won't. Like, I, I just don't think I, I don't think this like complicated series of, of calculations is, is going to go through. I have no idea what's going through Senate Republicans heads at the moment. I'm looking at their posture. I'm like, existing coronavirus funding, and I can't figure out what they think they're trying to do. Um, and I see no reason to believe they would become like more amenable to bold action in a Biden presidency than they are in a, in a Trump presidency. But I also felt journalistically I should convey what I was told, which is that there's like an elaborate 11-dimensional chess at work here, and we should we should watch it play out and and be be astounded by by the wizardry. Look, I mean I don't I don't think it's wrong that that's the way he's thinking about it. If you listen to the if the answer he gave me is basically structured in that way. Biden's preference is to work with Republicans. He thinks he can work with Republicans, but the newsworthiness of it depends on how obstreperous Republicans are is him at the very least keeping that door ajar, which he's not always done before. Like that is a little bit of movement for him. I think a strategy like the one they're laying out here works 
if they and Senate Democrats are willing to kill the filibuster and do it reasonably quickly if it comes to that. So like, I, I think you're right, specifically, Matt, on this is not, this cannot be across 40 issues. And one thing that's going to be tricky for Biden is he's going to walk into such a mess with COVID, with the economy, with climate change, with like the federal government being totally denuded of talent um, after like the morale destruction of the Trump years, with like America's role in the world being, you know, so weakened, which is something Biden cares about a lot. Um, like what they focus on first is going to be really important here. But imagine a world where they walked in and said, we're doing climate change first. And Republicans said, okay, great. We don't really think climate change is real. And if we, even if we do think it's real, we don't think you should do anything about it. So no, you're not doing climate change. And then Biden says to them like pretty fast, well, look, here's our proposal. If you have some changes to it, we're willing to listen to them. If your answer is you don't have changes to it that make any sense to us, um, and you're just going to filibuster, great, we're going to change this next week. That's a world where that can work, right? But what won't work is to spend six months negotiating over a climate change plan where all the reporting is that the climate change plan is stuck in the mud and has no path to passage. And it's getting more and more unpopular as like every fossil fuel company in the world spends billions of dollars to tell people about how like they're not going to be able to afford to take a car anywhere anymore. And then like when the thing is polling at 21%, you try to ask Senate Democrats who are looking forward to a midterm election in which like Biden isn't that popular anymore to change the filibuster. Like you have to do this fast as like a clear strategy. And so that's where it really depends on whether like Biden means it when he says, and like that guy means it when he says, uh, or I guess I don't know if it's guy you're talking to, um, that person means it when they say, um, we are willing to do this. Like, is your point like we are going to start, like we're going to have a bill that's going to move forward initially in the presidency. We are going to test the waters with Republicans. And then if they say no, like we are going to tell Chris Coons and, send, and, and, and Chuck Schumer, like it's go time on this, like build your coalition right now. And like we are going to make an argument that responding to the COVID crisis or stopping climate change or whatever it is, is simply too important to fall to Republican obstruction. Um, I know it might be annoying for people who listen to the weeds that like every time we have any discussion about policy, like I end up like whining about the filibuster for a while. But I do just want to say like it's the, the only thing that matters here. Um, if you can't pass things with 51 votes, which Democrats at this point look likely to have if they win, um, if you need 60, none of this agenda passes. It doesn't matter what deal they cut with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's not passable. Like you can do a certain amount of stuff through budget reconciliation, but not that much and not that well even there. And so like this is the central question and how they are thinking about it really is everything. The one thing I will say about Joe Biden is that I think he really believes, like he is very proud of his record as a legislator. He is very proud of his record as somebody who coaxes people to get to do things. And I think he is very proud of himself as somebody who like really has good faith and, and wants to engage in the pluralistic give and take of politics. And I think all that could go in one of two ways. One is that it could like get admired in this and like that's the end of his presidency uh, as far as legislation goes. But the other, and I really don't think this is impossible, is that Joe Biden will be so offended and pissed off. If for all of his good faith and deep relationships and really working at this and trying to help his Republican former colleagues out to like get them to yes, they just say no, 
that if after taking all that shit for saying something nice about Mitch McConnell one time, that Mitch McConnell just goes and tries to destroy his presidency outright. I think it is actually possible that Biden, who is a proud guy who is known for getting his backup, will say, well, then you know what? Screw you and actually go forward on this. I think there's some way in which Biden is so confident in himself and his own good faith that he will be like very quick to decide whether or not he's being treated badly. I can't say this for sure, but it's like, it's it's the it's a part of it that gives me like some hope that they're serious about this. Well, a related thought on that, that that I had when talking to sort of lefty people about, about their task force work was that, you know, I think, I think two things that like people on the left in democratic politics sort of underestimate are that all presidents, like regardless of their ideological or or, or personal background, like if you're president, you would like to be a big deal president, right? Like, and nobody steps into the White House and is like, I don't want to have important accomplishments. And then conversely, all presidents, except maybe Donald Trump, like want to be popular and get reelected, right? And so some of the stuff that everybody like stresses over about, you know, like Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, who's a real progressive, that kind of stuff. Like those differences narrow, I think, when you enter the Oval Office. Like it's easy as a safe state senator to do like left wing position taking. If you're president, you just like worry. You don't want to do super unpopular stuff. You don't want to lose. Conversely, if you're president and you like your name goes in the history textbook as like, then this guy was president and here's what he did. Like nobody wants to be Chester Arthur, right? And nobody's goal. If you look back at Bill Clinton, right? Like his goal in 1992, 1993, was to be a much more consequential president than he actually wound up being. Uh, And it wasn't like a lack of desire to transform the healthcare system on his part that led the healthcare system to not being transformed. And for Biden, it's the same thing, right? Like he has his long record in politics. He looked for a long time. He's wanted to be president for a long time and it kept not happening. And it looked at a certain point like it was never going to happen. But now it looks like it really is going to happen. And so like, yes, like he is going to try to enact consequential changes to American public policy, right? It's like what the left wants him to do. He also wants to do because that's just like what you want to do. But then the question is like, can you? Because there is there's all this rhetoric from him that would make you think that that long record as a senator, that Biden was like a legislative wizard who was responsible for brokering like dozens of consequential changes to the American legal system. And it's just not like, it's not clear to me that that's actually true. Like, he was a senator for a long time, and he had good relationships with a lot of people there. But, like, there isn't, like, the Biden Act and, and like, 80 things like that. So I'm not not sure where this—he has, you know, like, he has surprised younger, more left-wing media skeptics enough times over the course of 2020 that I do give him some benefit of the doubt at this point. But, like— the like Joe Biden legislative wizard thing, it just doesn't it doesn't seem that reality based to me. So one thing that I do wonder about this on the legislating issue 
is what will Democratic legislators do with all this in the coming months? And I noticed something interesting about the task force that, that I'd be curious if it came up in your um, reporting, Matt. But if you look at the various task forces, every single one of them has at least one and usually more key House Democrats on it. So like if you look at the... Um, the Immigration System Task Force. It's co-chaired by um, Representative Lucille Roybel Allard. If you look at the Healthcare Task Force, it's co-chaired by Pramil Jayapal. There's another one co-chaired by Fudge. There's another one like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on one of them. There is not one sitting senator on any of the task forces. Not one. And that's weird, actually, given that Joe Biden comes from the Senate. There's some former senators like John Kerry, but not one sitting senator, whereas every single task force has sitting members of the House of Representatives. And one reason I think that's kind of interesting is Senate Democrats can do functionally nothing right now. But House Democrats can actually do a lot. And one thing House Democrats could begin doing right now is begin building these task force recommendations into legislative architecture. This is something that happened in the run-up to Obamacare, and it's one reason, by the way, that I think Obama's legislative approaches worked out much better than Donald Trump's. When Donald Trump was elected, weirdly enough, Republicans, as far as I can tell, had done no work building out the legislation for what they actually wanted to pass. Like, they had to create a new healthcare bill from scratch. They had to build a new tax cut bill from scratch. It had all these years in control of the House and done nothing. When Barack Obama came into um, uh, office, Senate Democrats, also House Democrats, but both of them had been working on, for instance, healthcare for quite some time. They've been like, I was there, like at Max Bacchus's Prepare to Launch, like uh, series in in 2008. And so I really wonder um, if the presence of so many House Democrats uh, from like different parts of the party, right, like leaders in the Congressional Black Caucus, leaders in the Progressive Caucus, Connor Lamb is on um, is on one of these uh, projects and like he's on the climate change one and he's like a very like, – he's like a moderate Democrat who won a swing seat in Pennsylvania. If they're there because they're supposed to like – go back and infuse us into the House doing preparatory work for Joe Biden to come in so that on day one, they're not like starting a legislative process from scratch, but they have actual vehicles to begin running through the system. Yeah, let's let's take a break and then let's talk about sequencing, because I think that's where some of this stuff kind of comes together. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So... You mentioned, you alluded several times to budget reconciliation, right? Which is the like filibuster loophole 
that exists here and is the the other path to how you can get things done. And what's interesting about budget reconciliation is that there's a lot you can you could do with reconciliation, like looking at stuff from Biden's agenda. You can do uh, basically his whole health care plan is reconciliation eligible. Um, his big changes to uh, housing policy that I've written about are reconciliation eligible. There's stuff about EITC that you can do reconciliation-wise. So there's a bunch you could do, and you could conceivably fold it all into one big reconciliation bill. And if you add it up, as I've been trying to, but the math is hard, um, you could take a huge bite out of poverty in America with like reconciliation eligible Joe Biden policy proposals. Uh, So that's good. That's great. What you can't do with reconciliation, though, I mean, there's a lot of things you can't do with reconciliation. But what's really critical is like, you can't address the COVID-19 pandemic through budget reconciliation. Or climate change. Or climate change, right? And the, or immigration. Or criminal justice, which is also a right. big thing here. The the things that the Democratic base and like objective political reality are pressing on Democrats are not well suited to the reconciliation process. I could can, can I can I yeah, note yeah, one yeah. real quick thing for yeah. just anybody listening who's not heard our six hundred and seventy five previous discussions on reconciliation. The quick thing to know about budget reconciliation is it has two constraints. One is the Senate parliamentarian needs to judge it primarily budgetary in nature. So basically things that are regulations or do not directly um, move government spending are not reconciliation eligible. So like something where you say to health insurance companies, private health insurance companies, you need to like cover everybody with no copays. Like that's not reconciliation eligible, but creating a public option that the government is just spending money on directly, that that usually is considered rec- reconciliation eligible. And then the other thing is, at least inside the 10-year window, it has to be budget neutral or better. Um, so those are the two things. So if the parliamentarian decides that it doesn't fit one of those goals and their decisions on that can be quite arbitrary because people are also trying to fit in things that – uh, you know, they're not really mainly about increasing budgets or reducing budgets. It it gets very weird. Um, and then like there's a question of are you going to overrule the parliamentarian, which the Senate usually does not do. Um, but anyway, so that's what the constraint is, something that is really directly. It's like we're going to change how much money the government spends on something like usually that can work. But something that is we are going to tell private actors or states or somebody else what to do that usually cannot go through reconciliation. Right, exactly. So we're going to change the formula for Section 8 housing grants like that's clearly reconciliation eligible. Um, we're going to change federal sentencing guidelines is like probably not. Right. And no, you could try to say there's a budgetary impact of that. But anyway, long story short, I could talk myself into a sort of reconciliation eligible version of the Biden agenda as a really big deal. Um, But if I talk to activists in the Democratic Party and I tell them, well, we're going to have an agenda that doesn't address immigration, uh, doesn't really address racial justice in any meaningful way, and only cuts around the margins of climate change, they're going to be very disappointed. Um, And if you tell a normal person, we're going to have an agenda that has like only a loose relationship to the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent economic collapse, they're going to look at me like I'm a crazy person, right? And so Democrats are going to have to put together a bill that is, in some sense, we are addressing COVID, 
right? Like that's just the, that's the reality. That's how it's going to work. And that's probably not going to be a reconciliation bill. So the rubber is going to hit the road right away in terms of how much uh, aspirational build back better stuff do you want to try to put in that vehicle? Because Republicans are going to say that like build back better is a scam and that, of course, we're happy to talk about addressing the pandemic, addressing the economy, but that has nothing to do with all this climate stuff and like changing the wage structure and buy American provisions. And I, I do think it means that pretty rapidly you're going to have to choose between, okay, am I getting into lengthy conversations with uh, Mitch McConnell about the details of the unemployment insurance program, or am I telling Republicans like, no, we won, we're we're building back better uh, because that build back better plan, like it, it's all COVID framed, right? And it's pretty progressive. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's an unreasonable response to the pandemic, but it's also not just like we asked three doctors what we should do. Like it's building in like longstanding progressive goals. That's that's what better means. It means like more left wing. Um, and Republicans will feel incredibly comfortable walking away from that idea. One of the oddest things about the existence of the filibuster is that it means that all this journalism takes place in this kind of like quantum superposition where like, I'm really into yes. covering policy. Like I think you and I are both like personally and professionally dedicated to the idea that covering public policy proposals is important, but you never, it's like, there's always a part of the article where I'm like, I don't fucking know, man. Like, like what are yeah, we even like proposing all articles here? have this, in the rationalist community, they like to have at the top of every piece this thing like epistemic status, unsure. Right. And like, I always feel that all of my policy coverage would have like epistemic status, colon, like, I guess we'll see about the filibuster. Right. Because <laughs> like everything, it's just like, it's like this whole piece about somebody's climate change plan. At the end, it's like, but ignore everything I've written if the Democrats don't get rid of the filibuster. Right. But like, and then it was all a dream. Well, and it's, see, and the thing is, it's not just uncertainty in like the normal sense, right? Like anybody talking about the future, we should take uncertainty into account, right? But it's a bimodal distribution. It's not like I can describe what I think the the main implication is, and then I can caution you that like it'll probably land, you know, like not quite there. It's that what you can do with 51 Democrats and what you can do with a bipartisan coalition of 72 senators are like completely different thing. They're not close cousins to each other. You're also talking about totally different vote totals, right? Like there's, there's no way something passes, I think, with 52 Democrats plus eight Republicans. Like you go mm. into a world where you're talking about leadership level discussions, big bipartisan majorities, the left wing Democrats vote no, probably like just for fun, or maybe they vote yes, but it doesn't matter, right? It's like there's two or kinds. They vote no because they dislike it, right? But like the things you have to give Republicans to get that to get Mitch McConnell to let twenty of his senators do this are like pretty big concessions, usually, right? Like maybe there's a huge capital gains 
tax cut rolled into the, the COVID. I like, mean, for it, instance, something Joe Biden talks about is he got the Cures Act passed a couple of years ago, and that had both like a bunch of new money for for drug development and also what some people on the left saw as a bunch of um, like giveaways to pharmaceutical companies or did not do enough to regulate their prices and make it affordable. And so like that passed 95-0. It's something Joe Biden brings up a lot as like evidence that even in the modern era, he can like get big things done. Like that was just a couple of years back. But it's worth noting Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were two of that five, two of the five who voted against it. Right. And like the vote gets on like substantive grounds. Right, right, exactly. So so it's it's very bimodal. Like it would be interesting to do legislation that like involves peeling off a couple moderates, but that's not really what happens. It's like you have partisan bills and you have bipartisan bills and they look completely different. And I don't think we know after everyone has talked to everyone, like which it is that Biden is talking about pursuing. Um, Nancy Pelosi plays her cards uh, like so close to her chest. It's not clear she she has cards sometimes. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, I wish I could be more informative to people, but I feel like I've like learned a lot in the past two weeks, but still don't know what any of the answers are. I think that uh, admitting uncertainty is a path of wisdom. We're trying. We're trying. Like, I mean, if we learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we should be a little humble about what, what it is we, we really know. Um, the other thing I saw, which I, I don't know if you you have any insights on, but like, you know, there's going to be a lot of arguments about staffing things, right? Which is like really not what these task forces addressed, but in a practical sense is what a lot of intraparty wrangling comes down to is like, are we going to get like the old gang back, uh, which I, I think we are because it's Joe Biden, um, or is there going to be some like aspirational progressive new dawning? Uh, but that matters a lot because when the legislative path sort of runs out, what you're left with is kind of regulatory efforts. And like the Trump administration, interestingly, is at like the mid-level staffer like super duper right wing and incredibly ideological, even though the president isn't actually like that at all. Um, so I don't know, like, have, have you heard anything about this? I think this is actually a pretty hard one to figure out um, because it's a little bit operating in superposition. If you look at the staff around Joe Biden, the people he is listening to, it is Joe Biden staff. Like Joe Biden exists with like a very long history of people working for him because he has been at a high level of American politics for three or four decades now. Uh, maybe more. He came in in what was it, seven, the early 70s. So yeah, like 50 years now. And so a lot of people have worked for him. And then he was in the Obama administration. So not only did a lot of people work for him, but over eight years of the Obama administration, a lot of the top Obama people worked with him. And so just like a bunch of those people are around him. It's like, you know, we like people know like Ron Klain was his chief of staff um, and then became the Obama czar. And like Ron Klain, I think is expected to have a super high level role. Anita Dunn, who was Barack Obama's first comms director, is like working with Joe Biden. Donilon, like Joe Biden, Jake Sullivan, who was Hillary Clinton's top policy director, but worked with Joe Biden in the White House on foreign policy, like he's involved. Like they're all the like Joe Biden world, which is not a highly ideological world, although obviously has different people, different views, is pretty stable. But then like Joe Biden is obviously operating in a coalitional mode. 
So simply extrapolating out from that isn't safe, right? He is clearly, he clearly understands and the left understands that something they want, that something the left wants is to have like real, like have its people in staffing. And so things like this task force, like what does it amount to? The vice presidency will matter here too. Like if it's Elizabeth Warren, which she's been one of the, the the leading candidates, she's like all about personnel and she will have very strong views about who should be at HUD and who should, you know, be at the SEC and so on versus if he picks, um, I don't know, say Kamala Harris or uh, Duckworth from the Senate. Like that's not going to be quite as true. Um, they're not. They're not as known for sort of building out a massive like world of policy advisor that they will badly want to put into key positions. So I just don't know. I mean, I've like I thought. I think my assumption on this a couple months ago would have been that Biden would be a Biden administration would be like the Obama administration redux with. Biden loyalists and people with a Biden history in the top positions. Uh, but now it a little bit depends whether or not they like actually believe that this sort of way of like pulling the left into the tent is really important. They're like meeting people they like, perhaps. And so you're going to see more than that, more of that. Like, does Abdul El Sayed become like a key person at HHS? It's like a really interesting question that would have really important consequences. Um, and I don't really think they know the answer to that yet. Yeah, the, the makeup of the transition team is a little bit surprisingly progressive relative to the sort of general trajectory of, of Bideniness. Um, Have they named, I just missed this, did they name their transition team? Yeah, so so like Ted Kaufman is chairing the, the transition team, and he's, of course, a longtime Biden aide, but I would say of veteran Biden people is the one progressives have the warmest feelings about, um, thanks to his brief stint as a, as a senator. Um, there's a Jayapal staffer. Yeah, and just to note, he was a, he's an anti-bank guy. He was one of the leaders of the Break Up the Banks movement. Yeah, there's a there's a Jayapal staffer uh, on, on the relatively small group, um, someone from uh, former chief of staff of Ben Ray Lujan's. Um, so it, it's interesting. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, you don't want to read too much into like early transition type type things, but it it, it went yeah, more. Yeah, it's, it's got an Elizabeth Warren economic policy staffer. Yes, exactly. Julie Siegel. Exactly. So it's a it's a hmm. definite. It, it seems like an overture to the left, and is like so low profile that it, I mean, if you do things just for show, you should show them to more people. Uh, that that's like it's not a secret, but like this is not there. Unlike the task forces, like there was no big rigmarole around the assembling of this group of people, um, and it's interesting. Um, of course, you know it's it really, is interesting. It's really hard to report on transitions because people feel cursed about discussing them. There's still an election to win, um, and understandably, nobody wants to be seen as like complacent about winning the election. Uh, but you know, there's a there's a lot there. All right, should we wrap this up? I think that's a good place to end. Okay, we're good. Uh, okay, thanks, Ezra. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer Jeffrey Gelb, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. 
Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.